0: I' going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter one. I'm actually going to be looking at two passages, one from the end of chapter one, Ecclesiastes, and then skipping ahead to verse 12 of chapter two and reading through verse 17. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. This is God's word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." down to verse 12 of chapter 2. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. If you've seen it in the new Avengers movie, Tony Stark, who of course is not only a brilliant scientist and inventor, but he's also Iron Man, Tony Stark invents an artificial intelligence. He designs an artificial intelligence that he calls Ultron. And his purpose for Ultron is to become the great protector of the planet Earth, that it would be the ultimate in global defense. But predictably, after he creates Ultron, this artificial intelligence, as it looks at all the threats to the Earth, it comes to the conclusion that human beings are the greatest threat to the Earth and then proceeds to try to eliminate human beings. I say that's very predictable because... there—that's. You, can you think of how many science fiction or adventure movies have that theme as part of the story? That mankind, in our great intellectual and technological advances, we create this artificial intelligence that becomes smarter than we are and then becomes our enemy that turns against us. That's such a common storyline in these types of movies. You can think all the way back to the early 1980s in war games where the computer tried to end the world because of of the input, looking at what uh, human beings had done to the world. Or go back to the late 60s with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hal tried to destroy the people on the spaceship, because they were the threat that it saw. This is such a common theme. It makes me wonder that there's something in human nature that understands that getting smarter and smarter and even creating things that are smarter than us is not the path to salvation, that somehow it results in destruction. There's something pessimistic in our nature that says that being smarter and wiser and more knowledgeable isn't the answer. Well, this isn't a new theme. It's been around a long time. The book of Ecclesiastes was written 3,000 years ago. And that's a very important message that the book of Ecclesiastes has for us, is that through knowledge, through being smart, through wisdom, we cannot find salvation. Not only can we not find salvation, we can't find even meaning and purpose in this life. As we talked about last week, when we introduced the book, the main speaker the center of the book is kind of a literary figure. He's kind of an invention, so to speak, of the writer. And we don't know if the writer was Solomon or not. There's a good chance it was. We can't be entirely sure. But the person who speaks in the main part of the book is, is you know, we, in the Hebrew, his name is Koholeth. It's what's translated in the English translation is to preacher or teacher. But as I said last week, I can't, as you can tell, I can't pronounce Koholeth very well, so I'm going to keep calling him Professor Q. He's a teacher who presents a view of reality that is important to understand, although it's not the whole truth. Professor Q's perspective is described in verse 13. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. In other words, Professor Q set out on a comprehensive, exhaustive search of reality, but he puts a qualification on it. He puts a limitation on his search. He says he's only going to look under heaven, or the phrase that we saw last week, and we'll see many other times in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. He's only going to allow for what he's able to observe under the sun, and he's going to try to seek meaning and purpose in what he finds. He devotes himself to the task. He says he applied his heart, and that's another way of saying he he, he gave it his all. He's all in on this task. He gave all of his effort, all of his energy, all of his mental capacity to this search, and he's leaving no stone unturned. What he's describing here in verse 13 is a focused, diligent, disciplined, long-term investigation into every part of creation and aspect of life. And he says in verse 13, 12 that he is king over Israel and Jerusalem now of course if it is Solomon that makes sense it may be a later Davidic king again this is something scholars wrestle with as to who's actually the author but obviously he's a Davidic king he's a king on the throne and so as he sets about to pour all of himself and all of his resources into this search realize that this is a royal endeavor in other words he has all the wealth of his vast kingdom and all the authority to do whatever he pleases within that kingdom to pursue this search. So this is research that does not lack funding in any way. He has what he needs to do this exhaustively. And if it is Solomon, then verse 16 of chapter 1 makes a lot of sense. He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that's a boast, but it's if it's Solomon, it's not an idle boast because we know that God gave him exceptional wisdom. Matter of fact, God says to him in 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 12, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. The wisest man ever has all the resources of the kingdom and and, and all of the authority to pursue whatever he wants to pursue, and that's the kind of search that we have before us. matter of fact, in verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, you notice, for what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. In other words, he's not worried about somebody coming along after him and finding out something he couldn't find. He's really confident that he's got the final word here, that this is the ultimate expert on the topic of where you're going to find meaning, and he's going to pursue it, by wisdom, and his first part of the search, he's going to get into other aspects of life later, but the first part of the search is to delve into wisdom itself. Of course it is. That's what Solomon valued most. That's what he cared most about was wisdom. So that's where he's going to start his search. Now, wisdom, when we talk about wisdom, and this is probably not news to any of you, but wisdom is not the same as knowledge. Wisdom begins as knowledge. You learn data facts about the world around you but wisdom is actually the ability to take that knowledge and apply it well to life and so you can see that you can have a lot of knowledge but not a lot of wisdom you can't have wisdom without knowledge but you can but you can't have wisdom you wait how do I say that you you can have wisdom with knowledge you you can have knowledge without wisdom Um, anyway you know where I'm going with that The idea is that you take what you know and you apply it well. And the more knowledge you have, therefore, the more and more widely you can can apply it. So when you think, and we're not just talking about your job vocationally, being wise in how you do your job. That's, you know, if if you're a scientist, if you're a teacher, if you're an engineer, if you're a doctor, that makes sense. You have knowledge and then you apply it well to do your job well. But when Solomon seeks out wisdom, he's not only thinking vocationally, he's thinking in all areas of life. Knowledge you have about your hobbies. Knowledge you have about your spouse. Knowledge you have about your children. Knowledge you have about how to interact with other people. We talk about relational IQ or emotional IQ. That's wisdom. To be able to interact well. And so that's what he's talking about. Knowledge, and of course, if you want to be wiser, the more knowledge you have, the better. But it's got to be something beyond knowledge. I think about when I graduated from seminary. I went straight from spending... Actually, seven years altogether, and counting. Counting undergraduate years, seven years in education. The next day, they plopped me down in a little country church and said, "Okay, be a pastor." And I had no clue about what to do. I had a lot of head knowledge, but I had very little wisdom about how to apply everything I knew in theology, and church history, and pastoral ministry. It's all head knowledge. It's taken me many, many years to develop any level of wisdom about how to apply that knowledge well. And so that's what—that's the, the angle that Professor Q is going to take here. He's going to search for meaning and purpose in life through acquiring knowledge and applying it well through wisdom. But I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here. He doesn't leave us in suspense at all. He gives us his conclusion right at the beginning. No, no wondering where he's going to end up. Verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold... All is vanity and a striving after the wind. Pretty solemn, somber conclusion. As we saw last week, the word vanity doesn't refer to pride. It's it's a word that comes from a puff of air. It's, that's the, the, the real basic root idea in the Hebrew word. We called it soap bubbles last week. It's, it's something that looks attractive, beautiful, but pop and it's gone. And there's nothing left. That everything under the sun ultimately is vanity. It's empty. It's meaningless. And he adds a phrase here that he will use several times later in the book, striving after the wind. He uses it a couple times in the passages we read this morning. Striving after the wind. Literally, the word can mean either chasing the wind or herding the wind. Shepherding, herding the wind. And you may have translations go either way on that. How futile is it to chase the wind? Could you ever catch the wind? Even more so, could you ever herd the wind? You think herding cats is difficult. Try herding the wind. That's the image that he's putting before us. Matter of fact, I, I'm convinced that's why one of the reasons why God gives us such wild variety in our weather. Because there's nothing in life that influences how you're going to live your day, in day in and day out, than the weather. It's the first thing we check every morning. We, we care so much about the, what the weather's going to be, but there's nothing in life that we have less control over than the weather. And so, all is vanity. All is soap bubbles. All is meaningless. All is empty. Under the sun. That's a tough message for a university town. This town is full of people who have devoted their lives, who have given their lives to the same search that Professor Q is pursuing here to gain knowledge and gain wisdom. And unfortunately, the higher percentage of them are hoping to find their meaning and purpose in that search. So this is a tough message, tough message for a town that's based for AccuWeather too. (laughs) It's like hurting the wind. It's like, trying to control the weather. I came across this quote from the famous atheist Richard Dawkins. He said, Human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. Now Richard Dawkins has committed himself to the worldview that says there is nothing else besides what's under the sun. And so that's his final conclusion. Professor Q comes to the same conclusion using the same parameters of discussion that Richard Dawkins uses. But as we'll see, Professor Q doesn't stop there. He's actually wanting to drive us beyond the sun to look for real meaning and purpose, but we'll get back to that. Under the sun, the search for wisdom and knowledge, knowledge and wisdom is meaningless, empty, purposeless, But we can't give up, can we? Professor Q acknowledges that here, that we're driven to find meaning and purpose, even though that search leads nowhere. And that's because it's a God-given task. He alludes to that. Now, remember, I said last week that Professor Q is not an atheist. An atheist says there is no God. God does not exist. Professor Q acknowledges that God exists, and he'll refer to God throughout what he says in the chapters to come. But the God, in, because Professor Q has wanted to start with this limited worldview that says that what's under the sun is all that's real, that's all, that's, all that we're going to consider, therefore God is above the sun, he's outside of that realm, so the God that he, in, in this scenario he's painting for us, is distant, he's uninvolved, he's not interacting among the affairs of men. And so he does believe in a creator God, but a God who's not interacting with us. But this God has made us in his image. We are different than the animals. We are different from all the other creatures that God has made because we are in his image, and because we are in his image, we need to find meaning and purpose in life. Unlike the animals, we're not content just to get up and eat and drink and play and work and survive. That's not good enough for us. You ever hung around with a four-year-old? What's a four-year-old's favorite question? Why? It's <laughs> amazing how everybody knows. Why? You hit that age, and you say to the kid, it's going to rain today, and the kid says, why? You know? Say, the stars are far away from us up there in the heavens. Why? You've got to take a bath before you go to bed. Why? Why? There's an instinct deep within us to understand why everything about us is what we observe to be true. It's because we're made in the image of God. Animals don't have that drive. Verse 13, though, describes this quest for knowledge and wisdom in an interesting way. This is chapter 1, verse 13. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. An unhappy business. Matter of fact, I think that English translation is greatly watered down. The, the Hebrew word in the original is used in other places to translate evil. It's an evil task. It's an evil business. Now, of course, he's talking about something God did, so it's not, he's not saying morally evil. He's just trying to get the message across this is a grievous task that God has placed upon the shoulders of man. This search for meaning and purpose through knowledge and wisdom. It's given to children, man, to be busy with, he said. That's not very good. I'm always surprised the English translation gets away with leaving the infinitive, or, you know, the preposition at the end of the sentence there. But, but I like the way it puts it because I think it gets the idea across as we talk about busy work. Don't you hate the parts of life that feel like busy work? I mean, I think every teenager feels like all homework is busy work. It, you know, it's not relevant to my life. And if you're in the military, I've heard stories in the military where to teach just the, this concept of authority, they'll tell the, the, the recruit to dig a hole and then fill the hole back in. You know, it's busy work. And, and, and what Professor Q is saying here is that if there's no meaning and purpose to the search for knowledge and wisdom, then it's busy work. It's just like that. It's like digging a hole and filling it back in. It has no ultimate meaning to it. That's not to say that wisdom has no value at all. You notice that? Over in chapter 2, look at verses 13 and 14. I'll read them for you again. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he is saying that there is some relative temporary benefit to wisdom, and he's comparing their wisdom, as he says, to foolishness. Foolishness is is either ignoring knowledge or acting against knowledge from observation. So he's saying there is benefit in wisdom. God God created the world. He created the world to work in a certain way. There's design to the world. So if you work with the design, life is going to be better for you. If you follow what God designed marriage to be, marriage will be better. That's true. If you ignore what God has designed marriage to be, Life will be difficult. All of life is like that. There's a design. There's 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 a creator behind everything. And so he's saying to pursue wisdom has that very temporary advantage to you. Your life here while you're alive will be better than if you ignore knowledge and you reject knowledge and wisdom. It's kind of like if you're in a dark place, it's better to have a flashlight than not have a flashlight. If you don't have a flashlight, you'll trip over things, you'll fall, you'll get hurt. So it's better to have a flashlight. God designed life. Life does have some purpose to it in a temporary sense. And so he alludes to that. But it's only temporary. That's because he wants to, in a moment here, get into the fact that the problem with wisdom isn't with wisdom itself. Wisdom does have that relative value. But the problem with wisdom lies within us. You know, those supercomputers, the genocidal supercomputers that tried to wipe us out of existence. We are the problem. They were right about that. We are the problem. It's the curse. The curse that God placed on the earth because of the fall. When man committed sin. When man rejected God and turned his back on God and chose to exalt himself instead of God. In verse 15, it alludes to it in a poetic verse there says what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted that's the curse the world is crooked the world is twisted the world is broken the world is not what it was intended to be and not everything is in the world that was supposed to be here there are things lacking there's things that are inadequate in the world because of the curse because of the fall the ground produces thorns and thistles we work with sweat and toil we have pain and suffering we have conflict we have frustration As we saw last week in Romans 8, Paul says the creation was subjected to futility not willingly because of him who subjected it. It's because of the curse that we can't find satisfaction in this world. And the part of the curse that is most devastating, the part of the curse that makes sure that all knowledge and all wisdom ultimately is meaningless, is death. That's the focus of the curse. You are dust, and to dust you shall return, God said to Adam. Adam. And that's what Professor Q refers to over in verse 14. He says, The same event happens to all of them, both the foolish and the wise. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. for if the wise, For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. It's really troubling to Professor Q that the wisest people die at the same end as the most foolish people. That's what makes all the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom ultimately meaningless and purposeless, is that we're all going to die. Einstein is dead, so is Hitler. What value is there, ultimately, in pursuing knowledge and wisdom? You can live your life wisely according to God's design. You can invest your resources wisely according to God's design. But in the end, you're all going to die. Woody Allen once said, I don't want to attain immortality through my work in movies. I want to attain immortality by not dying. A lot of wisdom in that statement. Because really, that's all that's important. Death makes all things meaningless and purposeless. And that's why we come to the conclusion of this exhaustive, comprehensive search of Professor Q. He gives the conclusion twice. First in verse 18, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, So I hated life. I hated life because there's no meaning or purpose, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after the wind. Another well known science fiction book and movie is a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Again, in that one, you have a supercomputer. And it's given the task of determining the answer to one simple question what is the meaning of life? It took seven and a half million years to compute the answer to that question. You remember what the answer was? Forty-two. Well, Professor Q says, Well, actually, it's not forty-two, it's zero. It's nothing. But I think that's what the author of Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy is trying to say anyway. That there is no meaning and purpose to things ultimately. And that's the conclusion of Professor Q. That's the conclusion everybody, everybody who has any knowledge or wisdom should come to if what's true is only what's true under the sun. If that's all that's true, there's no meaning or purpose. That's why the rest of scripture is given to us to say you need to look above. You need a wisdom that doesn't come from observation in this world. You need a wisdom that comes from above in order to find meaning and purpose. That's what Penn State University needs to hear. That's what State College needs to hear. If you want to find meaning and purpose in life, you need to look for wisdom above. You will not find it in the search for knowledge and wisdom here under the sun. There's a lot of debate in our culture these days about, well, in the church especially about science and the Bible, you know. And 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 what I, you know, when I look at what Professor Q was trying to do, wasn't he following the scientific method? Wasn't that what he's saying? I am going to use my five senses, and I'm going to observe everything under the sun, and I'm going to use the scientific method to determine what's true. And so, the scientific method is a good thing. Christians should never. You know, be opposed to using the scientific method. That's a good thing if you understand the limitations of the search. It only observes under the sun, but it's insufficient to find ultimate truth because the scientific method can't find it. It's something that comes as a gift from God from above. If you ever worked on a puzzle, I, you know, that's kind of a lost art these days. People don't work on puzzles anymore. You can buy those 1,000-piece or 1,500-piece puzzles, and you work on them for weeks, you know, to, to finish them. You ever have that experience, if you've ever tried it? have you ever had that experience where you've gotten a good chunk of it done, but you, you, you've been looking for, for days, maybe weeks, for the right piece, just it's one right, you can't find it anywhere, and then one day, all of a sudden, you think you found it. This is it. This is the piece that has been missing. This is what I've been looking for. And you put it in, and it doesn't quite fit. What do you do at that point? You pound on it, of course. <laughs> I can make it fit. It's got to fit. It's got to be the right piece. And unfortunately, that's the way it is with, with science and the Bible. You know, if you're coming from the scientific perspective and you want the Bible to be true, you'll take the Bible and you think you've got to, it's all figured out from the scientific method, from science. You know, you've got the whole thing figured out and you've got the Bible and you're just going to try to shove that Bible in there and make it fit into your gap in what you don't know. And it doesn't work that way. But it doesn't work the other way either. It doesn't work to try to figure out everything the Bible says and then take what science is and try to cram that in and make it fit either. What you've got to understand is that from God's perspective, the whole puzzle is complete. And it's perfect. There's no missing pieces. There's nothing that, there's no extra pieces. Every piece will fit and one day we're going to see it. That what he told us in scripture that gives us wisdom from above fits perfectly with what we can find and observe under the sun. The problem is again the curse. We're interpreting badly. We're seeing through the glass darkly. We need to trust, first and foremost, in wisdom from above so that we can rightly interpret wisdom under the sun. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way good, godly, humble scientists have done it throughout history. God has spoken. That's what the rest of Scripture tells us. God has spoken. Praise God, He has spoken. Because if God hadn't spoken, we're lost in that darkness under the sun. Psalm 40 verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So you start there. The bigger picture that everything else fits into. The Bible gives us God's view from above the sun. It gives us our presuppositions by which we interpret all the data, not only of the physical realm, but of the spiritual realm. We interpret everything in light of what God's word tells us. And what the word of God tells us, The fact that God spoke means that God is active in this creation under the sun. But he's more than spoken, hasn't he? Beginning of Hebrews says God spoke to us through the prophets through all the ages. But now he has spoken finally through his son. The son of God, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, added to his divine nature, a human nature, and he was born among us. And he walked among us and he taught us. He communicated intimately with us, and when he taught us, he said, in order to have meaning and purpose, you need to be born again. You need to be born from above. God has to turn on the lights. God has to open your eyes. He has to open your ears. He has to give you the ability to understand the truth that he's revealed from heaven so that you can have meaning and purpose in life. That's why the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs says over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is a gift from God. We're not born with the fear of the Lord. We're born with rebellious, dark, dead hearts. But God has to intervene. He has to take away that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, give you that ability to have a fear of the Lord. And by fear, I don't mean trembling there. I mean awe and worship reverence, trust, love for the Lord. And that, he says, is the beginning of wisdom. That's what makes everything make sense. That's what brings meaning and purpose to what you observe under the sun. In the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul compares worldly wisdom and wisdom from above. And he talks about the wisdom of this world. He says, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. But he says, Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ didn't just bring wisdom to us. He is the wisdom of God. Matter of fact, in Colossians 2, verse 3, Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Trust him. Let him open your eyes. Let him change your heart. Let him show you the big picture. Let him give you those heavenly presuppositions that will make all the rest of life fall into place and make sense. The key to wisdom is Jesus Christ. And ultimately, going back to what Professor Q said, the ultimate problem is what? Death. What's Christ's ultimate solution? Resurrection. That's the gospel. That he not only lived among us, he not only taught us, he not only lived perfectly, but he went to the cross and died in our place and took the wrath of God that our sins deserve. He took them upon himself, and he died for us under the wrath of God paying the price for our sins, and then was raised from the dead the third day, there's a way out now. So God not only gives us that flashlight so we don't fall down in the darkness of this cursed and darkened world, but he gives us a path. There is a plan. There's a route to take, and there is an end to that route. That route takes us to the cross, and then beyond the cross to the empty tomb, and then out of this fallen world into the eternal kingdom. That's all the meaning and purpose you need for life. And the gospel provides it. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. John Paul Sartre, who was one of the best-known atheists, philosophers from the last century, here's a quote from him. He said, Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. But what if you are Eternal. What if there's a way out? What if there is a way to live eternally in the presence of God? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, there are a lot of people in this room that have devoted their lives to seeking knowledge and wisdom. But I thank you, Lord, that... At least most of us here have found that there's no meaning and purpose in the wisdom that is under the sun father thank you for opening our eyes to see christ thank you for sending christ to die in our place to conquer death for us and to give us the gift of eternal life and forgiveness and a right relationship with you as a part of your family forever That is the meaning and purpose of our lives. We thank you that you've given it to us as a gift of grace. May our lives reflect our thankfulness and our praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.